Thank you, Steve. That felt really official. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to be with you all. I, I'm with you every week, and I'm thankful to be with you up here this morning. Um, Rob and the crew who put together this teaching schedule, I don't know what they did. There's a lot of doctors up here this summer, a lot of them. Uh, RTS Chancellor, Dr. Ligon Duncan, one of my professors. Dr. Rod Mays, Dr. Irwin Ince, the M&A coordinator. Next week you have Dr. Kelly Capick from Covenant. And then Reed will go in between them. So here we are this morning, and I'm glad to, glad to do that. Uh, we have a, a great passage um, straight in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, really the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching for us this morning, Matthew chapter 5. Very famous passage. These are words that I imagine uh, are familiar to many of you, uh, and I hope that we together as a congregation find a lot of encouragement in this passage. Um, And I want to just add my welcome. If this is your first time uh, or you're fairly new to Clemson Presbyterian Church, welcome. We're really glad you're here. Um, You honor us by taking time out of your Sunday to worship with us. I know a lot of family members are here, extended family this morning. We're glad you're here, and I hope that you find great encouragement in the Word of God this morning. Let me read for us Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, where Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord, the very words of Jesus, and they will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I do pray that you would be our teacher this morning. As you climbed up a hill with these men to escape this crowd and opened up your mouth and began to teach as the rabbi that you are, I pray that you would come into this room through your spirit in a very real and powerful way, open up your words to speak to your people who've gathered here to hear from you. We need to hear from you. We need more of Jesus. We need less of ourselves. We need more of the words of the King and less of the words of the world. We need you, and I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would calm my anxious heart and mind as we look at this text together. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just finished up my 10th year with RUF, starting year number 11 now, and one of the things that our staff team was encouraged deeply in this year, and I've I've talked to some of you other campus ministers with other great organizations about these same things, and, and few things encourage a campus minister's heart more than seeing students have a desire to share the gospel with their friends who don't know Jesus. And I think we saw more of that this year than any year that I've been in ministry um, at Clemson. Uh, Students who want to grow in their 
um, own understanding of the gospel grow in their own uh, ways of communicating that message to their friends. One, one story really stands out to me, and I ask permission to, to be able to share this story. We had a few different studies around the topic of evangelism this semester, and at our last study of one of these groups just a few weeks ago, I just asked kind of around the room, what are some ways you've seen God at work in your life, um, in your relationship with your unbelieving friends? And a couple of students shared um, about their heart for their roommate. So two Christian students uh, and a third uh, who doesn't know Jesus. And so these two students were sharing a, just a very brief story about the ways that they've seen God grow their relationship with their roommate, someone they've prayed for for a long time, that they would uh, come to know Jesus and have looked for opportunities to share the gospel with them. And um, they shared this very simple, beautiful story where uh, one night not too long ago, maybe a, a couple of months ago, this roommate was talking to them about some of the difficult things that she was going through. And I don't, I don't even know what those things are, but something that was on her heart very heavy. And she basically asked them, uh, you know, how have you worked through some of these things? And one of these Christian roommates shared that I, I know exactly what you're going through. And I have, I've certainly struggled with those same things and am struggling with them. But one of the ways that I've found help is really in my relationship with God. And so she wanted to know more. What does that look like for you? And so this, this friend, this Christian roommate, went to her room and grabbed her prayer journal. And she brought her prayer journal to her friend, and she said, this is something I've been doing the last couple of years, is just, just praying to God in this journal, writing out my prayers of the things that I'm going through and, and asking Him to work. And this friend began flipping through the pages of this prayer journal, and what she discovered was her own name in the pages, and what she came to see is that her friend, in her prayers to God, had been actually praying for her as well. And she was deeply encouraged by this, so much so that it really has opened up more opportunities for them to speak about some of the ways they've seen God at work in their lives. And this friend has begun joining them uh, for worship in church. Um, that's sort of where the story is. It's not like a finished story. It's, this is how God is at work right now in the middle of one such relationship. You have these stories, too. You're in the middle of many of them in ways God is at work in your life and through your life and the relationships with your friends or family members or coworkers or neighbors. And what, what I love about this story and hanging on to these sort of moments is because it is both so simple and profoundly deep how God works through ordinary relationships in everyday lives, ordinary people like me and you to bring glory to himself and to bring good news to others around us. He loves to work through the ordinary things and ordinary people, like the disciples who are originally hearing this message, like us who are hearing this message today. And that's exactly what this text is about when Jesus talks about salt and light. He could not have picked more ordinary, homely metaphors than these two, because every home in first century would have had both salt and light. Every home, no matter the income, had salt. No, every home, no matter the income, had some version of light, even if it was just a small candle. They're so basic, so incredible, ordinary, yet both salt and light have the ability to permeate the whole around them, right? They have a tremendous impact on the thing which they touch. And so Jesus is simply saying, so it is with you, Christian. There's an invitation here from Jesus to have incredible impact upon the world in which God places you, to places me, places us as a church community, to be salt and light. Now, he actually doesn't say, go and be salt and light. What does he say? He says, you are. You are salt and you are light. So let's consider what Jesus means, that you are salt and you are light if you are in Christ. If you like outlines, and I do, 
And if you like alliteration, and I definitely do, here's your three points for today. We're going to talk about the premise of salt and light, the problem with salt and light, and the purpose of salt and light. P's are the easiest to alliterate with, just a heads up in case you preach sometime this summer also. All right, let's talk about salt. Just for a moment, salt, of course, in our day, you know, we just think of salt mostly for taste. Salt makes everything a little bit better. Salt in chili, salt in a cookie recipe, salt on watermelon is imperative. I ate so much watermelon this week with so much salt. But salt does this thing. It makes things better. That's part of Jesus' point. Salt makes things better. The thing that it touches is impacted. Jesus is saying to his followers, you are to actually make the world better around you. Bring salt to your work, to your relationships, to your neighborhood, to your dorm, to your gym. We really are as Christians to be helpful and to be hopeful and to be secure in who we are in Jesus, to be encouraging and thoughtful wherever we are. That's one use of salt. Sort of the flip side of that that scholars are quickly uh, to point out when it comes to sort of the context where Jesus is speaking is salt doesn't just make things better, but of course salt also keeps things from getting worse. Especially in Jesus' day, salt was used before refrigeration systems were invented to keep meat from spoiling too quickly. Take a big piece of steak, cover it in a bunch of salt so that it wouldn't turn brown too quickly or stinky or something like that. Christians are placed into society to do the same thing. We are actually called to go in and engage the world around us to not just make it better, but actually to keep it from getting worse. And that may, may sound odd to us, but Jesus is calling us as believers to step into a world that is hurting, that is confused, that is struggling on a regular daily basis, and we're to represent Christ and the truth of Christ and the love of Christ to the world that is directly opposed to Him. We're to move into whatever little piece of the kingdom Christ places us and to bring truth in love with grace to our neighbors into this culture that is so misguided on many, many issues, issues not limited to, but certainly including marriage uh, and divorce, greed, power, issues of sexuality, racism, justice, whatever the issues are, we're called to move into and bring the very words of Christ to these areas. Not just make things better, but to slow the spoil in whatever way that we can. And one, one of my favorite parts of ministering to college students is helping them, coming alongside them, and helping them identify now how their particular career and calling is a kingdom calling, not just if you go into full-time ministry, but all Christians are in ministry. I've, you know, I've heard it said we're, we're not just in, uh, we don't just have an occupation, we have a vocation as Christians. We, it is a calling from God. And so whether you're a nursing student or education or engineering or art, and this is true for you, whoever you are, wherever you are, what, the, what God has called you to do on a daily basis, you are gifted and individually called as a teacher or a, a small business owner someone in medicine, or maybe you're a retiree or a stay-at-home mom, you are to be salt in the world in which God places you to make things better, and by God's grace, to help slow the spoil in whatever way that might look like. Now, Jesus' light uh, metaphor is similar. Light is so ordinary, 
yet extraordinarily necessary. Light has many uses. We're not going to go through like, how does light work? But light does a lot of things. Light um, shines, it, it guides, it, uh, it reveals, it heals, it comforts, it warms. I mean, there's so many ways that we could take this, but, but think of the simple version here of, of thinking of walking through, uh, walking in darkness in the middle of the night, walking through woods in the middle of the night, and, and the moon is not bright, and you just a little light goes a long way to see the path to walk. Jesus' premise is that the world around you is dark, and you have the light. In fact, He says you are the light in the darkness. We are to bring the light of the gospel into a dark world in which we live to let it heal and give comfort and hope and guidance. I think about how Christians have done this throughout the ages and how the church has impacted society. Over the last 2,000 years, Christians have had a profound influence in so many areas, healthcare and hospitals and education, music, art, science, technology. You know, from Augustine to Wilberforce, from Bonhoeffer to Billy Graham, from Mother Teresa to Martin Luther King Jr., from C.S. Lewis to Steve Dickey, God has been at work. And He is continuing to be at work in this world, bringing real hope. He's raised up men and women throughout history to reflect the light of His truth and the light of His love into an otherwise dark and dying world. One, one thing that many have pointed out about this premise is that both salt and light need to be near the object in order to have impact and not completely separate from it. Jesus says this, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Salt in a salt shaker does no good for my watermelon, has to come near it. Light over there does no good for light in here. Christians are not called to separate from culture, but, 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 but to be distinct within culture. We're not called to sort of live as holy hermits, sort of doing our own thing and building our, our, our own world away from the world, which I think we're, we're tempted to do. It, it's comfortable, and it makes us feel good. But Jesus is actually calling us to engage the world around us, to be near, to be in the world but not of the world. We're to be separate from culture but to be distinct within culture, to bring gospel renewal and transformation just as salt transforms the taste of a dish or light transforms the darkness of a room. I was reading this week Jesus' prayer in, in John 17, and He makes it so clear. He prays, I am not praying that you take them out of the world but that you be with them in the world. And then he goes on to talk about and pray that the Lord would sanctify us with His Word while we are in the world. I wonder how God might be calling you this week to engage in the world around you, whatever that might look like, wherever God calls you in your work, in your relationships, how He wants to use us as a church in this community. I see it. I see I was thinking about it a lot this week. I wish I had 30 more minutes to just share stories of the ways that I see you engaging in this mission. You really are a light in the darkness. So many stories from this week that I've just seen. And I think we should share that stuff with each other, by the way. I think we should really encourage each other. Here's how I'm seeing you as light shining in the darkness. Here's what I've, I've seen from your life. It's happening. The Lord is using you. But we have to note there is a warning in this passage. And it's interesting in both metaphors that Jesus 
seems to be saying that too much nearness comes at a cost. You may already be thinking about this as we talk about being in the world. Jesus points out in verse 13 the problem. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Jesus says there's a point where salt loses its saltiness or light loses its shine. How might this happen? Well, literally, salt would lose its taste in olden times by becoming contaminated by surrounding impurities. Like in Jesus' day, salt would be pulled from maybe the Dead Sea, but it could be intermixed with various vegetation or pollutants that would uh, make it useless as salt. Light, Jesus says, no longer serves its purpose if it is hidden or extinguished, because when light goes out, it is no longer light. So what are the warnings here for the church, for the followers of Jesus? I can think of many ways in which the pure salt of the gospel might become contaminated, intermingled or intermixed with the present impurities of the world around us where we become so near that we are no longer affecting the world, but we are being affected by the world, right? That's the warning. Where truths might be compromised, convictions tossed aside in order to fit in, get ahead, make an easier or more comfortable life for ourselves, to do what we want to do, no matter what Jesus says, or where the church is no longer influencing the culture, but is rather being shaped by the culture. Jesus' clear teaching from this section is that Christians are called to be distinct in the world. We are called to be different. And so if we're not different, then what are we? Sinclair Ferguson has a great short book on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, which he says it very boldly and with a Scottish accent, but he says, when salt loses its saltiness, it is worthless. The same is true for those of us who profess to be Christians. Cease to be different, and we cease to be Christian. Now, Jesus is not talking about losing your salvation. That is not what is happening here, but He is identifying that Christians are to be absolutely distinct in our witness in the world. Different how? We could do applications forever, and part of my hope in this message is that you would have conversations about what this means for you individually. Small groups talk about this, families, grab a friend. I really think applications are sort of endless, but I think it has to apply to everything we relate to in our world, right? How Christians relate uh, to our families, how we relate to our work and marriage or in parenting, our, how we relate to our coworkers, our neighbors, how we relate to our finances, how we, how we think about trials and struggles and sufferings, how we think about uh, mental or emotional health issues, how, how we welcome others, how we can even, get this, learn to disagree without dividing, how we can face difficulty in a way that is more influenced by the Word of God than it is by the culture around us. Of course, the culture is always at work against the church. The church is always in, in potential danger of being co-opted by the messages of the world. And so we need to examine, are we being more influenced by the world's view on many important topics, or are we more influenced 
by Scripture? Is our light fading? Is our salt losing its taste? These are worth considering, and it's been convicting for me to think about in, in my own life. What are, what are some of the ways that the, my daily decisions and the way I think about things in my life are being more influenced just in the world that I live rather than God's Word, the way I think about money, or the way I think about a dream vacation? Where's that coming from? Or the way that I think about uh, so many different things. What are we being influenced by? Whose voice is louder in my life, the voice of the world or the voice of the King? If you go on to read in the Sermon on the Mount, right after this, Jesus begins this way of talking that is so uh, incredibly profound where he says over and over again these two things. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Think about, he talks about anger. You have heard it said, you shall not, you know, murder, but I say to you. You have heard it said, and he talks about lust. You have heard it said, he talks about divorce, he talks about enemies, he talks about retaliation. What is he doing? What Jesus is doing throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is he's taking the messages of the culture in which these disciples are finding themselves, and he's then giving them a better message. Sometimes he quotes the Old Testament, but sometimes actually what he's quoting is a misinterpretation of the Old Testament. He's quoting what they have heard about these issues, like on the the enemies thing. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's not in the Old Testament. That's a message that has come into the followers of Jesus, and he's now giving a corrective message, what Tim Keller calls a counter-catechesis. There's the catechism that the world is giving, and now Jesus offers a counter-catechesis. And so which message is louder in our own life? Let me give you a silly illustration that makes sense to me because only silly illustrations typically do. But here's one. I, it wasn't until just the last couple of years that I finally kind of got into uh, the more modern um, earphone market. Uh, I, and, I, and I finally uh, invested in, I think, uh, as a present, I got some, some AirPods. And I was really nervous to get them because I thought I would look really ridiculous wearing AirPods. It turns out I definitely do. Um, but they are so helpful. I find, uh, I find my AirPods to be super helpful because here's why, we, here's why the earphone, AirPod, earbud market is incredibly saturated today is because we live, we live around so much noise, right? And what AirPods or whatever your brand is helps you do is drown out the noise around you. And so for me, it's helpful when I'm like trying to exercise and I need to focus on taking a next step or when I'm cutting the grass or um, when I'm cooking and I want to focus on the, the, the dishes and I listen to a podcast or especially for me when I'm working in a coffee shop or something like that and I'm wanting to, to type and, and focus on the thing around AirPods let you drown out the noise. This is not a commercial, but it is an illustration, and here's the point. We live in a world where we are totally saturated by, saturated by noise all the time, all the time. Mixed messages coming at us left and right, especially if you're big on social media, whatever that is, if you're on Facebook or TikTok or whatever in between, you are being saturated by messages way more than you know, right? We're being saturated by messages that are just sort of in the world and in the culture. How do we ever drown out all that noise? and find a path forward. Well, we have to simply do this. We've got to turn up the volume of the gospel. We've got to put on our gospel earphones and turn up the volume so that we hear the words of Jesus far more loudly than the voice of the culture. 
And we've got to learn to help each other do that. This is part of what church is. This is why, by the way, you have small groups or Sunday school. This is why we have conversations in between the two, and this is why we have worship and hear the Lord's Word, and we sing together and we pray together is because we need, we need the voice of God so much more than we realize. And I think about it for our kids, and I think about it for students who I love and for the sort of next generation. How are we forming them with the words of Jesus? One other illustration that I heard recently that just hit home for me. This is a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I had never heard until recently on a podcast that I was listening to with a pastor named John Tyson. And he shares this story about Bonhoeffer where he was beginning his underground seminary to help raise up faithful Christians who would not succumb to the Third Reich as so many of the other Protestant and Catholic churches had done in that day and in that land. And so he was given this land to host this underground church and seminary where only a few dozen pastors were in this cohort, and they were doing some deep formation around the Word of God. And supposedly a friend comes to Bonhoeffer, this is how the story goes, to confront him to say, what are you doing? You're going to get in trouble. You're sort of wasting your time. What are you doing with this little group of pastors over here off to the side? And so Bonhoeffer takes his friend out in a boat, and they go up the river where they could see um, Hitler's uh, airfield, one of his airfields, and he could, they could see Nazi soldiers marching and training and planes being tested. And the story goes that Bonhoeffer turns to his friend, and he points back to the seminary, and he says, this has to be stronger than that. This army is being formed already. This has to go deeper than that. I think it's a powerful image and a powerful message even for our day. John Tyson shares at the end of this podcast, he simply asks, do we understand the stakes and the urgency of our own day that our formation here has to be stronger than the formation that is already happening there? The messages of our world are strong. The Word of God is so much stronger. We need one another to remember that. We need to sit under God's Word on a regular basis. We need to share those, th- that message of good news with our children and with our neighbors. We need to turn up the volume of the gospel because this is stronger than that, and we need that message. And all of that leads us to this final point, which is, what is all of this for? We've talked about the premise, you are salt and light. We've talked about the, the potential problem, don't lose it. But Jesus ends with something very important because he says the salt and light serves a much greater purpose. Salt flavors something else. No one eats a bowl of chili and says the salt is amazing. No one walks into a museum that is well lit and looks up at the lights and says this lighting is really great. No, the light helps something else to shine. Or the Clemson version of that illustration would be no one walks into Death Valley at 8 o'clock on a November Saturday night and says, look at the lights in this place. No, the lights help show the action on the field. Jesus is saying salt and light exist for the sake of something else. So what is that, Jesus? Well, he says, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
We are not salt and light for our own benefit. We are not salt and light for our own glory. We are called to be salt and light for the sake of the glory of our Father who is in heaven and for the world around us. And it is only, I believe, when we are more deeply, most deeply motivated out of a love for God, will we be truly loving as we seek to be salt and light. And what I mean by that is if we're motivated in any other way, there's a couple ways it could go. It could either mean that we, we become super manipulative with our messaging because we just want people to be like us. We can be very sort of judgy or... Um, you know, or, or distant and just sort of hold it out there. You need, to be like, you need to be like us. Or we could be super cheesy on the other side. And believe me, I know cheesy Christianity. I was a child of the 80s and 90s in South Alabama. I know cheesy Christianity well. But it's, it's like a simple thing to do. But there's a deeper, more rooted version of Christianity that Jesus is calling us to hold out, and it is one that is deeply motivated by the glory of God and for the benefit of our, our neighbor Before we can be light, we have to experience light. It's the only way that we can be deeply motivated by the glory of God. In order to reflect light, we have to receive light, like the moon. I'm not sure this is actually how it works in science, but the moon doesn't produce light on its own, correct? Everybody with me on that? Yes, great. That was a reach. The sun, though. The sun? brings light. Very good. We are the moon in this illustration. We are only reflecting the light. I'm glad that one held up. I wasn't sure. In other words, in order to add flavor to the world God has placed us, we have to see, we really do have to see how Jesus has preserved our life, how Jesus has given us life, how he has given flavor, purpose, hope, joy, meaning, real depth, with real gratitude. We have to see how Jesus is the light that has actually shined in to the darkness of our own lives. And out of that, we let the light shine. Second Corinthians 4, Paul writes, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Consider, how has the light of Jesus shined into the darkness of your life? How has He flavored your life? How has He preserved your life? The only imperative, the only command in this entire passage is when Jesus says, let your light shine. We have to receive in order to reflect. And what are we receiving? This is really the gospel. Jesus, the irony is when he says, you are the light of the world, he says in another place in the gospels, I am the light of the world. He is the light that has shined into the darkness. In this passage, he talks about a city on a hill. No doubt the disciples would have had in mind Jerusalem as a city on a hill whose light can be seen from miles away. Jesus was the one who then went to a hill outside of that city and was put on a cross. 
where Matthew records later in this very gospel that the light was put out and darkness came over the land for three hours. The light shined into the darkness and the darkness came into this moment, but the darkness does not overcome the light. The story goes on that Jesus rises from the dead, but Jesus takes on the darkness of our sin, of our failure, that we might experience, receive, and reflect His light to others. To take the metaphor a little bit more, Jesus was the one who was tossed out and trampled underneath our own sin, threatened and treated as useless, hung on a cross. Why? So that our lives might be preserved and used to advance His kingdom. This is the good news of Jesus. And maybe for some of you, you've actually never experienced light in this way in your life. And you're sort of wandering around in the darkness now, and you've tried so many things to find what what hope can I find in the middle of the darkness. Consider this a real invitation from Jesus to receive the light for the first time. Maybe you don't identify as a Christian or you've never professed faith in Christ. Jesus invites you to receive the light that has shined into the darkness. Receive it and reflect it to others. We began by thinking about how incredibly ordinary salt and light are. Think of this original audience as we end. This ordinary group of men that Jesus had first called to follow him, most of them were fishermen, tax collectors, maybe some religious professionals. You widen the angle and you see the crowd that begins to form. You'll find others in the crowd, some poor and sick folks, teachers, tent makers, mothers and fathers, carpenters, some children, a small ordinary, and to the world, a very insignificant crowd. And it's to these exact people that Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. They could not have even imagined what Jesus meant by those words and what he would intend to do through them, ordinary otherwise seemingly insignificant people, yet God used this crowd, these exact people, to light up the world. We have the light because God let the light shine through them. And He wants to do the same through ordinary, mundane people like me and you. I want to end with sort of a an in-house or family conversation, if I could, just for a minute, because I've been thinking about this a lot as it relates to our church and our community. I've seen so much how God has used you as individuals and even this church over the course of, what, nearly 40 years to be a light in this world. It's amazing how He's used this church and this community and this place. And what I've seen over the last, we've been here five years now, And what I've seen over the last five years is through difficulty, through pandemic, through transition, through death, through mourning, through a lot of uh, real trials, and we might even say at times darkness. What I've seen is that the light shines in the darkness. Sometimes we tend to think as Christians that our witness in the world is based on strength, 
if we could just be strong, sort of have our act together, show this world around us that Clemson Presbyterian Church is fine. We're great, actually. Put on our smiley faces, our nice suit, look good to the world around us. We tend to think that our witness is based on strength or buildings or, um, or programs or teaching or whatever the case is. But what if, what if, what if God is actually inviting us in this season and has been at work through these many years? What if He is doing something in us for the sake of the world around us and for the sake of His glory and not our own? What if Jesus has invited us as a covenant community to experience light in the darkness that we might really, really shine as light to the world around us? Because what I have seen is that we are a community that is growing more and more to a community that prays together, that weeps together, that celebrates together, the struggles together, that is at times vulnerable together, confessing our sin to one another, finding light in the darkness. And I think in this new season ahead, which I'm so excited about and thankful for, I would only pray that we would become more and more a community growing in that direction, that we would be a place where you are free to struggle, free to at times fail, free to repent and confess and walk humbly with one another and with God, only then will we actually be free to find light in the darkness and reflect that light to others. And so let that be Jesus' invitation to us as he calls us in this passage. So let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and glorify not us, but glorify our Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your invitation in this passage. Jesus, thank you for your words that you want to use your followers to permeate the world with the good news of the gospel. And I pray that you would. I pray that you would continue to do that in our hearts and our lives here at Clemson Press. Thank you for my brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in this congregation. Thank you for those who are visiting. I pray that we would all come to know and experience more and more the light of the gospel. In the face of Jesus Christ, we ask in your name for your glory. Amen.